Well, good afternoon, everybody, and uh, welcome to uh, our Nun Talks. And excited for lots of the guests that we have lined up for this year. And so today uh, on Nun Talks, we have um, Tanya Keto, and I'm super excited to have her present to us. She um, has a Bachelor's of Ed and a Master's of Education and is also a registered psychologist. I'm sure she would want me to let you know that she is a mother. She's uh, been a teacher. Um, like I said, she's um, a registered psychologist. She's a manager of professional development and community education um, and in Fo at Foothills Academy. And then also um, has done some um, session um, instruction. And we had the opportunity to have uh, Tanya come and spend uh, an afternoon with our educational assistants and was really excited about what she had to share there. And I thought it was really important uh, for our listeners to our podcast to maybe have some uh, opportunity to, for some learning. And the topic that we're going to address today is executive function. So welcome uh, to our show today, Tanya. Grateful to have you here. And I don't know if there's anything you want to add to our introduction. No, that was an excellent introduction. Thanks so much for having me. And I'm always excited to talk about executive functions, which makes me really popular at family get-togethers. <laughs> I bet. Because <I> <laughs> first of all, people are going to say, what is executive function? So in your yeah. slide presentation that you gave to us, mm -hmm. um, I think the title of it who is Who's the Boss? And yeah. so um, maybe we could just walk through with our, our, our listeners about what is executive function and, and why the title, Who is the Boss? Yeah, no, it's a that's a really great question. And aside from it being a uh, reference to one of my favorite TV shows in the eighties, uh, Who's the Boss? Um, I love I love that it captures exactly what executive functions is. So when we're talking executive functions, we're talking the brain boss of our behavior. Um, so uh, we're talking things like um, planning, uh, paying attention, organization getting started on tasks, completing tasks, remembering things, um, having all the materials you need in one place at one time. Uh, we're talking even emotion regulation. Now, emotion regulation can be a factor all on its own, but certainly executive functions tells uh, our emotions how they're going to work and our emotions inform our executive functions. But for the sake of today's conversation, we're really just focusing on all of those small little behaviors that over the course of the day add up to how successful we navigate our day. Awesome. So if someone is struggling with executive function, what are some of the challenges that they would face? And I know you kind of mentioned those there, but what are those challenges like as a parent of a student uh, or a child who might be dealing with some executive function? Um, I would say disorders or challenges. What what would I see, and what what are some of the things that I I need to pay attention to? Okay, so what I like to do is take a look at sort of the experts in the industry. What what are they saying about executive functions? Um, and I really love Thomas Brown's um, model for executive function. Uh, he breaks uh, these uh, behaviors into six different categories. So. We're looking at things like activation. So when we have difficulties with activation, we might have challenges with uh, being able to sort through and prioritize information and materials in order to get started on a task. Um, we're talking about uh, prioritizing tasks. So knowing 
that I need to, in a word problem, solve the first step of the word problem before I can get the information I need to go to the second, third, and fourth steps and so on. And that can relate to writing a book report. It can re relate to any sort of school-related tasks, life-related tasks, really. Um, we're talking about the ability to keep track of our items. So when we have difficulty here, uh, we might uh, lose items frequently. And as an ADHD or myself with executive function deficits and a mom of a 15-year-old, with uh, ADHD and executive function deficits. We have lost a lot of water bottles. We have lost a lot of travel mugs. We have lost a lot of umbrellas. I'm quite sure that I am putting somebody's uh, children through college simply through my own uh, difficulties with um, keeping track of my items. We might have uh, issues with procrastination here and last minute panic. We might see uh, incomplete tasks um, or even not remembering to hand in homework. And we see something called time blindness. So this is exactly uh, exactly what the name describes. So it's the lack of awareness of time passing. And uh, all of these things are human behaviors. But what we're talking about uh, when it comes to children, adults, teens, adolescents struggling with executive functions, we're seeing consistent, uh, persistent, and pervasive difficulties in these areas. But like I said, these are human behaviors. So that's Activation difficulties there. Uh, difficulties with focus. Um, this is focusing on the voice that we need to be paying attention to. This is screening out distractions. And uh, we might also struggle here with hyperfocus. Now, hyperfocus doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing. Hyperfocus uh, can serve us well when we need to sit down and get things done. Um, it becomes problematic when we hyperfocus perhaps on certain things that aren't the best use of our time. And then we become time blind. So we lose um, track of time passing because we are hyper-focused on tasks that may not be serving as well or tasks that um, keep us from doing the things that we need to do, such as homework, uh, watching Netflix uh, for six hours instead of getting homework done. Um, with action. So again, I'm talking about Thomas Brown's model here of executive functions with action. Um, we might have challenges with restlessness hyperactivity, impulsivity, uh, difficulty compromising, um, difficulty uh, apologizing too is actually something I see here. So I often see uh, rigid thinking when it comes to action. This is thinking before acting or speaking, reading social situations correctly, being aware of how others see us. So other challenges here incorrectly reading social situations and either under aware of how others see us or hyper aware of how others see us. And you can imagine how challenges and both of those areas can certainly create problems with social skills. Um, emotion, uh, easily recognizable in terms of challenges. We might say that some individuals have a short fuse. They might overreact to situations. They might be overly sensitive to criticism. And one thing I did talk about with your staff is if they took one thing from my session that day was to be aware of how they use sarcasm and how often they use sarcasm. Sarcasm is, a, is an incredibly nuanced form of social communication. And I know many adults who struggle with um, interpreting sarcasm correctly um, or using sarcasm in a way that doesn't hurt others. So my experience, uh, both in the classroom and, and as a parent and as a school psychologist, is that children generally, uh, and when I say children here, we're talking 12 and under, often miss the nuances of sarcasm. 
Um, but this extends to beyond the age of 12 when we're talking individuals with executive function deficits. So I often caution educators who are working with kids, even um, adolescents in junior high, to really watch their use of sarcasm because it can often be misinterpreted and it can also often be hurtful and that can impair, impair relationships. Uh, we're also talking things like memory as well. So uh, difficulty following directions, uh, working memory issues, which then plays into difficulty learning to read, difficulty learning those fundamental math skills, difficulty with language use and learning vocabulary and using age-appropriate expressive and receptive language. So that's really what we're talking about. When we're talking difficulties in these areas, uh, Austin, that is how I would break those down for you. Awesome. So one of the one of the points that really came to me when you came in and sat with our EAs and, and did some work on them is that that piece around executive function development. So mm-hmm. kind of that 30 percent um, gap or rule. Um, so roughly if I'm age 16 and I, I have that executive function development delay, I'm, you know, 30% behind. So I'm 70% of 16, which is about 11 years old. Mm-hmm. Can you kind of just walk us through what that looks like as a, you mentioned your your own daughter and and what that looks like for a student and and as adults in their life, what we can kind of do for them understanding that? Yes, that is so important. And I will tell you that often the, the, Biggest, most reoccurring theme um, in terms of comments I get after my sessions is how impactful understanding that 30% delay is on our understanding and conceptualization of how we work with kids who might struggle with executive function uh, development. So typically, kids who are struggling with executive functions, uh, we're going to see uh, that often within uh, kids with ADHD. We're going to see it with kids with learning disabilities. We're going to see it with kids on the autism spectrum. And we're just going to see it in kids who don't necessarily meet criteria for a clinical diagnosis. It is just uh, the human condition in many cases is is, um, how I would refer to this. So when I'm talking executive function development, it really starts to develop in uh, early childhood uh, in a neurotypical individual. No, that's something, a a term that we use within the education and educational psychology world, Uh, neurotypical being no diagnosable condition, whereas neurodiverse captures those conditions I talked about, ADHD, learning disabilities, autism, and so on. Now, um, uh, development starts early childhood in a neurotypical individual. We are seeing sort of uh, peak growth at around age 25. When we're talking executive function deficits now, we are seeing a delayed in that peak executive function development uh, by seven to 10 years. So we're seeing, you know, age 30, age 35, um, starting to peak out in some of those executive functions. And and as as an, an individual who was diagnosed with ADHD when I was 38, you know, looking back at sort of the impact that delay in executive function development um, had on my own life as an individual with ADHD, it certainly made things a lot more clear to me in terms of why I struggled in certain areas and why I was more of a late bloomer, if you will. So now let's take this 30% guideline. Now, it isn't a hard and fast rule. It isn't a scientific number. It really is a guideline that was introduced by Dr. Russell Barkley. He is one of the pioneers within the world of ADHD. If you get a chance to uh, look at any of Dr. Barkley's work, I highly, highly recommend it. Dr. Um, I think it's just russellbarkley.org. Does some really fantastic work. Anyway, so his 30% guideline, 
is really taking into consideration that individuals with executive function um, deficits um, have an executive age that is about 30% below their actual age, which greatly impacts their readiness for developmental milestones. So uh, let's take an 11-year-old, for example, uh, an 11-year-old girl that's not uncommon for an 11-year-old girl to be starting puberty. Um, if we take into consideration that 30% delay, we could be dealing with an executive age of around seven and a half. Um, driving, as you said, so age 16, uh, let's take a look at that 30% guideline. We're looking at an executive age of about 11 years old. And this is really one of the reasons why we see such high accident rates in many of our new drivers. It really is that executive function delay. And if we're saying that executive functions don't peak until age 25, even if we're working with a neurotypical brain um, and we're starting driving at 16, um, driving is one of the most complicated things we do as, as humans. There's so many unpredictable nuances that can happen while driving. So is it any wonder that even a neurotypical brain at the age of 16 uh, might not be ready to take on all of those factors associated with driving? And I also like to pull in the age of 18 because now it's legal for um, young adults to drink and to use cannabis. And in many cases, they're heading off to post-secondary. Uh, we're looking at potentially at an executive age of around 12 and a half. So what this means is that we may physically see a 16-year-old. We may physically see an 18-year-old. We may physically see an 11-year-old and so on. But we need to and we must consider what they're working with in terms of their executive age. And we really need to adjust our expectations to match them where these kids are at. So let's uh, let's jump. And I know when I asked you about doing this, you you talked about I could go on for hours. And uh, um, I wish we had that time, but we, <laughs> we don't together. But what are like, just what are some of those things when we look at the, the models and we know about activation and effort and focus, uh, action, emotion, memory. What are what are some of the the skills? What are those things that I can do as a as a teacher in the classroom, as a educational assistant supporting students, or even as a parent? Like, what are some of those things that I can do to help with the deficit around executive function? Right. Great question. Um... And I am just so you know, working to try to keep my answers shortened. Oh, <laughs> this great. is short for me. Uh, you're doing <laughs> great. I, I, I get it, honestly. Uh, it's certainly a, a passion uh, topic for me. So, uh, you know, it's interesting you ask me what we can do because really where the success lies for our kids and adolescents and teens with executive function deficits and even just for our kids in general. Uh, stems from the environment. And first and foremost, that is going to be education. It's going to be knowledge. It's going to be awareness of the adults who work with these kids, who parent these kids, who love these kids, who live with these kids. It really is going to be understanding the brain of these kids. And some of that comes through uh, by just doing some research on, on, on the internet. So understood.org is a really great resource for understanding the brains of these kids. Uh, Child Mind Institute, another fantastic resource. And all of this is free for really understanding what's going on with these kids. Education is always my answer, my number one answer when it comes to what we can do to support these kids. I have some excellent online courses for parents and for educators uh, at foothillsacademy.org. Um, 
that uh, a $25 course for parents uh, that tells you everything you need to know about ADHD, everything you need to know about learning disabilities. Um, and it's so many resources. And the problem is, Austin is, and you probably run into this too, when we Google ADHD, when we Google learning disabilities, it can, it's more common to come across misinformation than correct information. So it's so important that not only do we have education in this area, but that we have evidence-based, research-driven, accurate information in turn, uh, instead of misinformation. So education is going to be my first one. Awesome. Yeah, I have more. Would you like me to go on? Yeah, <laughs> let's keep going on it. Okay, so education as an educator—that is my—that is my, that is my uh, job. I'm always going to be passionate about education. Next thing we want to do is uh, we want to make sure that we are adjusting our expectations. So I'll, I'll pause you on that because that would be my next question. And, and mm -hmm. I think sometimes when we hear that, we think we're lowering our standards. Uh, and so when we say I'm going to adjust my expectations for a kid, we're we're lowering that standard of excellence or however you want to word that. Mm -hmm. So, yep. yeah, I would love you to speak on what that means to adjust our expectations uh, for students and especially those who are dealing with executive function. Yeah, that's an excellent question. And so instead of lowering our expectations, I see it as adjusting the bar. Never have I seen a child uh, be put in a situation where the bar is raised beyond their capacity, feel good about themselves, nor has it driven them to be successful. More often than not, they will continue to try to reach that bar and continue to experience repeated failure which then uh, leads to reduced motivation, which then leads to reduced capacity and belief of what they can do. It reduces the opportunity to practice those much needed skills. When they're not practicing those skills, they're following, falling further and further behind their same age peers. It's something uh, in education we call the Matthew effect, where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. So if we don't adjust that bar and have these kids see that they can be successful, um, they won't. They just won't. And by refusing to adjust that bar, we are failing these kids. So, uh, and, and a saying that I love from Dr. Russell Barkley is, for example, impulsive children do not do well in China stores. So don't take them there. It's not fair for them. We need to evaluate our expectations and set these kids up to be successful. And that comes from adjusting our expectations and shifting the environment. And often our instinct is to coach harder and to parent uh, harder and to nag and to argue and to um, talk. I feel like we do a lot of talking and lecturing to these kids, but that is often going to make the situation worse, particularly if we are emotionally dysregulated in those moments. We need to understand that these kids can be successful. We need to be more patient. And I will tell you, that when I first started out parenting, before I understood that Avery had ADHD, I parented the way I was parented. And that was that old school, do as you're told um, <laughs> and do it now, right? Um, that didn't work for me as a child. It certainly did not work for my brother who had ADHD um, and it didn't work for Avery. So I knew very quickly that I needed to change my approach to parenting and in you know partnership with that, my approach to teaching um, because I was not being effective in either role if I wasn't able to adjust that bar and adjust my expectations. And keeping in mind that 30% guideline, uh, stepping away because we're humans too. And many of us with ADHD children have ADHD ourselves. Uh, ADHD is highly heritable. 
So we need to understand uh, when we've reached our own limits in terms of uh, being effective in a situation. So if, if voices are raised and emotions are high, uh, we need to step back from that because never has a child calmed down by being told to calm down. Okay, so what we need to do is recognize um, uh, our expectations. We need to adjust them to meet the kids where they're at. We need to come in and we need to teach skills to meet expectations. So quite often we can ask kids um, with executive function deficits, you know, what should you be doing right now? And they can give you the list of things they should be doing. Well, then it isn't a skill deficit. They know what they should be doing. They know the, the steps of the skills required. So then it's a performance deficit. So is it a motivation thing or is it a, a differentiation thing? Do they know when to apply these skills? Do they know how much? Do they know what steps to put them in? Okay. So uh, that would be a performance deficit. If it's a, it's, if it's a skill deficit, if we ask these kids, what do you need to be doing right now? And they genuinely look at you and say, I don't know. We need to take that as an opportunity to come in and explicitly teach what these kids need to be doing in that moment. Because what implicitly and intuitively is learned by neurotypical kids is often not intuitive for individuals who are neurodiverse. In which case, the environment needs to explicitly support skill development in that area. So expectations is a huge one. Awesome. So one of the other pieces that I know is really important, and, and I, I I know we're just giving people a, a taste of executive function, and I love that you yes. suggested all of the places to get um, support and education and, and learn more. But, but I just want to talk about for a couple of minutes here as we prepare to wrap up is the so supportive environment piece. And what does that look like maybe in a home and in a and and then in a classroom and and just how how can I do that and and um, so can you talk for just a minute about supportive environments yes and what that looks like for a kid that's struggling with uh, executive function for sure why don't we start with the home so uh, what we want to do it at the home is we want to be consistent we want to have consistent expectations we want to have routines that are clearly set out. Uh, if we can even post a, a schedule, that's even better. Um, and we want to carry out those uh, routines the same way every day, as consistently as possible using the same language. But we also need to be prepared to flex when required, because we know that kids with ADHD, for example, are consistently inconsistent. So there are going to be some days when they're just they've woken up on the wrong side of the bed, and we need to adjust our routines just a little bit to meet them where they're at. But primarily, we want to look at consistent routines, consistent schedules, and consistent procedures. The same way for getting out of bed to get ready for school in the morning. The same way we're going to sit down and eat breakfast. The same way we're going to get ready to head out the door to school. And it's the same thing when they come home. Uh, we might have a dedicated homework time. Then we're going to have a break time. Then we're going to have dinner time. Then we're going to have family time. And bedtime routine is needs to be consistent for these kids. Um, winding down well ahead of actual lights out and starting that sort of healthy sleep hygiene routine um, before actual shut, actually shutting out the lights. If your child is struggling with sleep, really do some research into sleep hygiene practices. Um, that's going to be phenomenal. Okay, so we need consistency. Uh, we need to have consequences. Now, when I say consequences here, I'm not talking punishments. Consequences are simply the results uh, after a behavior. 
So consequences can be daily rewards. Um, it can be lots and lots of positive reinforcement. And in fact, reward and positive reinforcement is going to be so much more successful than punishment and um, criticism any day, any time, all the time. So we want to be using a lot of positive reinforcement and, and rewards. And rewards don't have to be, you know, go out and buy things. Rewards can be simply something that child enjoys. Does that child enjoy watching a show with mom? Okay, great. Let's sit down and watch half an hour of, of child's favorite show together. Uh, that puts money in the relationship bank, by the way. We want to be building up their bank with lots of positivity. Uh, we want positive interactions. So we want to make sure we're paying attention to the balance of our interactions, aiming for at least a three to one ratio. This is tricky. Um, so three positive interactions for every constructive uh, interaction. Okay. So uh, you actually don't realize how little positive language we use with children until you're actually explicitly paying attention to it. So we want to shoot for that three to one ratio. And something I've spoke to your staff about, Austin, and something I'm passionate about as well, is the use of positive opposites. So instead of telling them what not to do, we want to be telling children what to do. Instead of don't yell in the grocery store, we're going to say talk softly in the grocery store. Instead of don't run in the hallway, we're going to say walk in the hallway. It's simply flipping our language so we're using positive opposites. Um, that is so critical for filling their relationship banks and for filling, filling these children up by telling them what to do instead of what not to do. Um, expectations. So we want to make sure that we are uh, maintaining those developmentally appropriate, appropriate expectations. Um, but not necessarily based on their chronological age. Remember that 30% uh, rule. Uh, we want to make sure kids understand our expectations. So we're going to put, we're going to speak very clearly with uh, our kids about what is expected for, you know, um, healthy uh, relationships at home, uh, behavior at home. And we want to be reinforcing uh, those um, sort of understandings of expectations. Um, we want to use smartphones and reminders, and we can use smartphones well to uh, provide uh, reinforcement in the environment in terms of reminders. We want to reduce distractions in the environment. Um, a crowded, cluttered home is no good for anybody's mental health, uh, but it is particularly challenging for kids who are neurodiverse. So we want to declutter their rooms. Uh, we want to declutter our homes whenever possible. And here's the thing. Pick your battles. If your child's space is messy and that's how they like it, they do okay there, let them have a messy room. That's their space. Close the door. As long as they're functioning and they're happy, let them have a messy room. My kid's room is a disaster. We just keep the door closed. Um, we want to make sure that when we're talking to our kids, that we're talking to them within a close proximity. I am a huge... <laughs> Uh, I don't want to say, what's the right way to say this? I, I don't like parenting from the couch, which is to say we're shouting out instructions from a different room or from a different part of the room. What we want to do is get close to our kids, touch whenever possible in a positive, gentle way. And we want to be speaking to them directly within close proximity. Um, we want them to repeat back instructions that we've given them. We need to also remember that we can only hold a certain amount of information in mind. So quite often these kids benefit by having one to two instructions given at a time and then having parents check in and follow up, okay? And ultimately we want to work on having a positive relationship with these kids. That positive relationship is going to be the number one indicator of this child's success throughout their entire lives, whether it be at home or at school. 
So we want to choose our battles. What is our goal here? Uh, when we have executive function deficits, it can often feel like we live in a deficit focused world. So as a parent, even as a teacher, if I'm creating an IPP, I want to focus on one targeted behavior, maybe two, but it can become, it can become easy to list all the problem areas and it can become really demotivating and really difficult for the child if all we're focusing on is all of their problem areas. Pick one or two things at a time. We're going to work on that. We're going to collaborate with the kids. We want their feedback. If there's something going wrong, we want to have a problem-solving meeting with them and say, hey, I've noticed this has been happening. What do you think? And allow the child to give their input. Maybe there's something going on in the environment that is um, creating an issue for the child that we never knew about. So we want to have that, you know, that chat. I'm noticing you're forgetting your homework every morning. Um, and likely the child's going to agree. Okay, great. What do you think we can do to solve this problem? Get the child's collaborative input. Um, if you're looking for more issues around problem behaviors, I highly suggest Ross Green's work on, it used to be called the collaborative and proactive, uh, what's it called, Austin? Do you know? Collaborative Proactive Solutions. Ross Green, collaborative yeah. problem solving. That's, That's it. it. Yeah. yeah, collaborative problem solving. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. There's so many acronyms within the special <laughs> education world, I forget them. Yeah, so if you're dealing with particularly challenging behaviors with kiddos, let's look at Ross Green's work. There's some really great uh, toolkits online at Ross Green's website, and they are all free, which is beautiful. Um, so, yeah, all of those things we talked about can work for home and they can work for school. Beyond that, I have tons of school resources, but again, uh, we could be here for hours talking about this, uh, and, and I am happy to provide resources to you. Otherwise, check out foothillsacademy.org and join up in one of my courses where I give hours and hours of strategies to help these kids. Awesome. I actually believe I have some EAs that uh, have signed up for your coursework, so I'm excited about that. Yes. Well, Tanya, I really love your passion for executive function. And uh, I, I watched, a, uh, I, I believe, a, a Zoom session that you did with somebody and was excited myself about what you had to say. I know I had lots of feedback from our educational assistants, and I know this is only a taste, but I would encourage um, uh, people who are interested to go to any of the resources, and we'll do our best to list them in the show notes and also your own work at Foothills Academy. And so just greatly appreciate you uh, spending time in West Wind a few weeks ago and then spending time with me on the podcast today. And, uh, and, and I know that this is a passion of yours and the impact that we can have on kids and their learning and their future success. So thank you very much. Thank you so much, Austin. And please never underestimate the impact you can have on a child's life simply by slowing down, taking time to understand where they're at and meeting them where they're at. Thank you so much.